our sixth episode of the IE Ion Industries podcast. Today, we're going to take a look at the potential impact of tax regime changes for private equity investors and manufacturers. In the first quarter alone, U.S. companies brought home $124 billion in foreign profits, the highest level since an immediate rush after the 2017 tax law according to data released by the Commerce Department. To some, the repatriations made just as the coronavirus-related recession was starting are a sign of how much companies may have needed cash in their U.S. operations. Or is this just prudent risk management during an election year where policy changes can be quickly reversed if Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden is elected? With the election less than 60 days away, now is an ideal time for investors and operators alike to assess the potential impact of potential policy changes on their current portfolio and M&A pipeline. Today, we've invited Sean King, who leads the international tax practice at McGuire Sponsor. Sean is a renowned legal, tax, and business advisor who brings his clients not only technical expertise, but also a cultural and commercial awareness that can only be gained by living and working in numerous countries and on numerous continents. Sean has completed transactions in more than 75 countries and has been included in the international who's who of corporate tax lawyers. We're excited to have Sean join us today. Sean, thanks for joining us here on the podcast today. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we begin, you know, our, our, our audience will be, uh, will receive a little bio about you in the preamble that, that precedes this, but maybe you can start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you create value for your clients at McGuire Sponsor. So, John, by, by training, I'm a, I'm a corporate tax lawyer. I, uh, I spent my career in a few different contexts. I spent some of my career with a, a large global law firm and part of my career with a big four accounting firm. So uh, for better or worse, I've, I've been able to, to see some of these issues that we'll talk about today from both uh, the, the law firm, the accounting firm perspective, the, the legal side, the, the tax and accounting side. Um, and I think that's one of the ways in which I can bring some value to, to clients on a day-to-day basis. You know, we look at some of the more academic issues, and then we try to distill that down uh, into practical implications for our clients. Uh, About 10 years ago, I I launched my own boutique firm uh, solely focused on engaging with clients on their cross-border transactions, their cross-border relationships, and and doing business internationally. And at, at January 1 of this year, my firm merged with McGuire Sponsor. It's, it's been a great relationship uh, thus far, and, and we're having a lot of fun with it. But what we do on a day-to-day basis is we assist multinational companies with efficiently moving people, products, intellectual property uh, across borders. So any, anything that crosses a border we can assist our clients in doing so in a more tax efficient and treasury efficient way, which goes directly to their bottom line. Would you characterize the tax environment as getting generally incrementally more complicated or has there been 
uh, in the past several years a trend towards greater simplicity? Infinitely more complicated, um, despite uh, some of those promises of, of being able to file your tax return on a, on a postcard. Um, infinitely more complicated in recent years, John. We, uh, we've seen it worldwide. It's not just here in the U.S. Um, we saw uh, several years ago, this started to percolate in the form of, of what was known as the BEPS initiative, uh, which is an acronym that stands for Base Erosion and Profit Shifting, or BEPS. Uh, that was an initiative promulgated by the OECD, and that has really been pushed out into more regional implementation around the globe. So over in Europe now, we have uh, ATAD1 and ATAD2, which again are acronyms for Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, uh, two different iterations of that. And then in its own form here, that has been uh, implemented in the U.S., not formally, uh, but in, in certain circumstances, including uh, the, the JOBS Act that, that we will probably get into later in the program, we are seeing tax policy around the globe be very fluid, and we're seeing a general propensity for uh, countries around the globe to say, you know, we're not getting enough of a bite at the apple, that we have multinational companies doing business in our countries, and we are simply not getting our fair share. And so countries around the globe for about a seven or eight year period now are instituting different mechanisms to try to grab a, a larger bite at that apple. Interestingly, Sean, I've been reading a lot of articles about how states are now vying uh, with one another for the tax revenues of, of individuals who may have crossed state borders and worked uh, you know, in, in a different jurisdiction during quarantine. And I'm wondering what the implications of this are for tax reporting you know, d domestically, but also internationally uh, in our new in our new COVID world. Well, it's a, it's a great observation on your part, John, because it, it goes uh, directly to the fact that the state tax authorities here in the U.S. are really borrowing a page out of the international tax playbook for um, many years. We have looked into the issues around transfer pricing and the concept of transfer pricing. And, and, and what that concept essentially goes to is the allocation of income between related parties, between multinational entities that are sitting in different tax jurisdictions that are subject to different tax rates. And so if you have an affiliate entity in a higher tax jurisdiction, and you have an affiliated entity in a lower tax jurisdiction, the propensity might be for you to reallocate income as between your related parties away from the high tax jurisdiction to the low tax jurisdiction. And it's a classic planning play that has been around for quite some time on the global or international scale. And that's exactly what the state tax authorities are, are doing here. They're taking a, a page out of that playbook and saying, well, if, if you're allocating income artificially from one state to another, we're losing that bite at the apple that I, I spoke to earlier. And so to your precise question around reporting requirements, uh, without question, there are reporting ramifications associated with this. Uh, here in the U.S., the IRS has uh, various different reporting mechanisms to track for uh, allocation of income between related parties. We have 
certain forms uh, that you have to file with your tax return every year if you're a multinational company that will give the IRS a roadmap uh, to allocation of income between parties. And we see that in different jurisdictions around the globe. So uh, not surprising, quite frankly, to see that the state tax authorities uh, are also getting on the bandwagon and are becoming hypersensitive to this allocation of income issue. Do you see a situation in which state uh, state tax taxation authorities will cooperate more with one another to make sense of this, or do they become more competitive with one another to you know, to protect their their revenue streams? Well, I I think the it's it's again a great question. I, I think the initial thinking would be that they would become competitive to some extent. At the same time, if you look again to the global scale as some sort of, of marker or indicator of what the trend is, you see that there are a number of initiatives around the globe at the moment around information sharing. And so you'll see that uh, the BEPS initiative that I spoke to earlier, one of the components uh, of that global initiative is that countries around the globe would share information with each other that uh, if a taxpayer gains a competitive tax ruling in one country, the contents of that tax ruling will be shared with uh, the other end of the transaction, the other country, if you will. And so I think while the initial reaction might be that they would be competitive in nature, I think, again, if the state tax authorities take a page out of the international playbook, they're probably going to look at that and say, well, on the global scale, tax authorities around the globe have decided to share information with each other. Almost a, a rising tide lifts all boats type of, of mentality where, well, if, if we can get our teeth in here, then let's just share a little bit of it together. Um, that's better than it slipping you know, below the radar and, and neither of us gets uh, what we're looking for. So my personal reaction is that, uh, again, borrowing from the international playbook, I would expect to see states collaborating more than competing. And, and is COVID, a, I'd say, a catalyst for this cooperation, or were were many of these things set in motion long before COVID? These were set in motion long before COVID, John, but I think COVID has certainly exacerbated the situation. I think what you're dealing with now is, uh, you know, a global economy that's in some state of turmoil, and that doesn't necessarily mean all bad. When I say turmoil, um, that's not meant to have a negative connotation necessarily. It just means that there's been upheaval, there's been change. Uh, we're working with a, a manufacturer, it's one of the world's largest um, manufacturers of um, fiberglass in-ground pools, and they've had a tremendous year. They've had a banner year, probably one of the best years in the history of the company which is very interesting. Uh, but if you look to the underbelly of why that's taking place, as people have spent more time at home, as people have been quarantined, this company is now in a situation where more people uh, are focused on spending their capital on their home properties and, and time spent together with their families. And so they're having this tremendous year. I tell you that in answer to your question, because as a result of the success they've had in different jurisdictions around the world, that now is pushing their tax planning, their treasury planning, where do we want our cash to sit? 
how do we fund expansion in one country versus another, a country that might have been, uh, you know, a, a very successful country for them two years ago is not necessarily a successful country for them today. So long way of answering your, your very astute question. A, a lot of these policies and the shifts in policy predated COVID, but as a result of COVID and the economic ramifications around COVID, it's exacerbating some of these issues from a tax and treasury standpoint for a lot of multinational companies around the world. We, you, you mentioned uh, sort of changes, and I think everyone's looking ahead towards the election in November. I think we're under 60 days now. And I wanted to get a sense, looking back to 2017, and you know what is what is effectively now become known as the Trump tax cuts, uh, basically reduced corporate taxation rate from 35% to 21%. And I wanted to get a sense from you, what effect did that actually have, uh, uh, certainly on our cohort of, of listeners, which are industrial manufacturers, particularly middle market industrial manufacturers and investors. And where do you, looking ahead, uh, is there any sense from what is coming out of Joe Biden's campaign, what that tax change might look like? Yeah, so, so a two-part question there, right, John? So, so one, you know, the, the so-called Trump tax cuts, um, in my view, and again, reasonable minds can differ, and uh, there, there's certainly space in, in the world to have differences of, of opinion around this, but in my view, uh, and, and someone who's, who's touched uh, on these issues now for, for more than 20 years, I, I think the Trump tax cuts, if we'll call them that, uh, had a stimulating effect on the economy. I think we saw uh, a, a great deal of stimulation in the economy uh, in many respects. You, you, know, you, you mentioned the rate cut from 35% to 20% or 21% rather. It, it went deeper than that. Uh, you also had a number of, of ancillary issues around that. We had the so-called transition tax, the, the Section 965 transition tax that forced multinationals to repatriate income or be viewed as repatriating income back to the U.S. on a one-time basis. That pushed uh, cash back into the economy uh, here in the U.S. that otherwise might have been deferred uh, or trapped offshore. We also saw an expansion of first-year depreciation write-offs. Um, so, so we saw, you know, a number of, of new business equipment additions. And so I think there, there are a number of indicia that point to the fact that the cuts had a, a stimulating effect on the economy. I think before COVID uh, came to pass here uh, earlier this year, I think we had a, a, a tremendously sound economy uh, at that point in time. And I think uh, that was certainly due in, in some part, at, at the very least, to uh, the Trump tax cuts. I think if you look back historically uh, where we've seen cuts of, of that kind, it's had a stimulating effect. And I don't think the Trump tax cuts were, were any different. I think, again, uh, they certainly were a, a jolt to the economy. Now, part two of your question is, you know, what are we seeing here with some of the the Biden proposals, the one you're probably most pointedly referring to is the so-called Made in America plan uh, that he rolled out uh, a week or so ago now. 
to be fair, and I and I really mean this apolitically, but the the Made in America plan is classic populist rhetoric um, that we've we've seen before. Uh, it's it's not a new refrain. It's populist rhetoric that plays well in your Rust Belt states. Uh, it's it's rhetoric that goes to bringing jobs home, uh, not offshoring activity. Uh, it's it's heavy on rhetoric, John. It's it's thin on substance. And, you know, what he's effectively uh, proposed is an offshoring tax penalty that would impose a 10% surtax on profits of any production by a U.S. company overseas that results in sales back to the U.S. So the effective tax rate on that would be about a 30.8 tax rate on on any profits emanating from overseas. Uh, And then on the flip side, he would offer a, a 10% tax credit for investments in, in certain areas like revitalizing or retooling manufacturing activities and bringing back production to the U.S. Uh, so these are, are somewhat diametrically opposed type of, of positions. Um, you know, Biden's position is to, is to essentially impose um, penalties on a, on a manufacturer that's going to carry out activity uh, offshore, um, Trump's uh, proposals or, or Trump's uh, tax cuts in, in the Jobs Act um, have, have really stayed silent on the situs of the manufacturing activity, and they are more focused uh, on, on where your global revenue sits or where your global revenue is, is allocated or recognized. So um, very different approaches to the overall tax posture of a multinational manufacturing company. In your work with private equity funds and industrial manufacturers, are you giving them any sort of time dependent advice between now and the election? Or are you generally uh, telling, advising them against incorporating political risk as part of the tax strategy? So somewhat of an incongruent answer for you here. Um, in, in some respects, we are telling companies and, and uh, our private equity clients uh, that there are some opportunistic situations here. Uh, we look at um, intellectual property valuation as, as an example. So if you talk about uh, intellectual property and, and the ability to migrate that more tax efficiently to a lower tax jurisdiction. Take your IP, regardless of where your manufacturing sits, take the underlying intellectual property or designs associated with the manufacturing activity and migrate that to a lower tax jurisdiction where you can allocate income to where that IP sits as opposed to where the manufacturing is taking place there are some opportunities there because you have depressed IP valuations at the moment. So in one respect, we are, we are talking to our clients about being opportunistic and realizing that where we have some depressed valuations, there is room for planning and we should probably move on that sooner rather than later. At the same time, we're also telling our clients in certain circumstances to tap the brakes a little bit. Don't, don't blow with the political winds uh, and don't allow that to inform your overall global policy on your tax and treasury planning. 
you know, I always point to the fact that the, the Jobs Act, the, the Trump tax cuts that, that you speak to, John, you know, that in many respects, people believe that that bill that became law and is now known as the Jobs Act, that that was written almost overnight. And many people believe that that was written you know, mid to late December of 2017, uh, was passed into law late in 2017 with immediate effect as of January 1 of 2018, that's actually not entirely true. Much of that language, much of that legislation was drafted years before uh, by a gentleman by the name of Dave Camp, who was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, long since retired. I believe Chairman Camp left office in 2015, and now his, his legislation, much of which he authored, uh, comes to pass in the form of, of the JOBS Act uh, two years after he's left office. The, the point there being that nothing moves all that quickly in D.C. And so as much as we are counseling our clients to look for opportunities at the moment, um, we're also counseling them to be cautious because knee-jerk reactions to a legislative environment that moves uh, very slowly uh, are not always the, the best reactions. And so I think clients need to be nimble. I think they need to watch closely, you know, keep the, the temperature of what's going on in DC. But you know, regardless of where the election breaks in November, there will be time to plan for the results, plan for any legis legislative changes simply because tax policy does not move all that quickly uh, in Washington. Well, tax policy may not move all that quickly in Washington. Does it move any faster at the state level? And do you see companies actually changing their headquarters with, you know, from state to state, depending on, uh, you know, the state's desire to uh, fill up their coffers in a sort of post-COVID depleted world? Great, great question. I think it it goes back to some extent to the question you raised earlier around uh, whether or not you know, the states would be competitive with each other uh, or cooperative with each other. And, and my response to that question was that I, my view is that they will be more cooperative. This is one area where I think they'll be more competitive. If you If you look to state incentives, and, and my firm has a, a, a very robust credits and incentives practice and, and work with clients on a regular basis on uh, re-domiciling from, from one state to another. And we're seeing a great deal of activity uh, at the firm level around those issues right now. Indeed, states are being very competitive. They're being very aggressive. And, and as you said, looking at filling those coffers. So I do think that's one area um, you know, if, if they're going to be cooperative in reporting issues, I think they're going to be more competitive uh, in incentives issues. Fascinating. And which states, in your view, generally are, I guess, more, more charitable or offer more competitive incentives uh, among, I guess, all, all 50 states? Are there any that stand out in your mind as being generally like business friendlier than, than not? Well, and it, it really depends on, on what is um, business friendly to, to the company, right? So uh, in some respects, that might be 
focused more on uh, state taxation and, and the rate of state taxation or whether there are, uh, as we said, you know, various credits or incentives available. In other cases, um, it's going to be more geographically focused. So uh, you, look at, um, you look at companies that are more interested in being closer to a port city. So, you know, Georgia, quite, quite active and quite aggressive um, around the port there in Savannah. Uh, you look at um, Florida similarly uh, for, for port issues and for, for taxation issues. But there are a number of states that are, that are very competitive in, in this space. Uh, Kentucky is one. Uh, Indiana is another. There are a number of, of states that, um, you know, even, even if you get off of the East Coast and you get out of some of those port locations that are being very competitive and being quite aggressive in this space. I'm wondering if you can give us an example from your work of a, a company that benefited from a really sort of thorough deep dive into their tax strategy and uncovered something that they weren't really expecting to uncover and what, you know, the, what the dollar magnitude of those, of that strategic council can look like. I think for many of our, of our members, there's, they're, they're obviously hyper focused on tax generally, but how often should they be reviewing their tax strategy? Is this something that one should review on a uh, you know, two year basis, three year basis, or is it one that something that should be reviewed every year? I think it should be reviewed every year. And obviously I'm a little biased, of course, admittedly biased, John, that I'm, I'm in the space, but um, I think it's something that should be reviewed every year, certainly in years uh, such as this, where you have uh, a very fluid environment from from a macroeconomic perspective. Um, but but we're working with clients on a on a day to day basis around that type of conversation. I could point to a, a number of examples where you know, we have been asked to look at the company's global uh, organization chart, if you will. Uh, where they have entities around the globe, where they're recognizing revenue. And, and we have a, a number of situations. I'm, I'm thinking of one currently where uh, the company was, was just bleeding taxes to, uh, to withholding at the local level. So they were paying uh, royalties or license fees from one country to another. They might have been paying management fees from one country to another. When the dust settled on the year, they had a global effective tax rate you know, up in the, the 30, high 30, low 40% range by restructuring uh, this one company in particular, by uh, imposing some holding company planning, dropping uh, some operating companies under a regional holding company that was a party to tax treaties in the countries around the entire group, uh, by engaging in some effective transfer pricing where we would use transfer pricing uh, not as a shield, not as a compliance item, but more as a sword, a planning item uh, to, to properly reallocate income to where some of the company's more sizable assets were located. We were able over a two-year period to cut the company's global effective tax rate in half. And so the, the one company that comes to mind, uh, their global effective tax rate last year was 18 percent uh, and and only a couple of years ago as i said was was up in the high 30s or, or low 40s and 
um, you know, that, that goes directly to the bottom line. That, that's a real cash tax cost uh, that we're able to save. Uh, and it's, it's not necessarily, you know, back-breaking exercise either. I think there's a little bit of a, a misapprehension out there that uh, engaging in, in some restructuring work, reorganizing your global entities, uh, looking at your transfer pricing is some exorbitantly expensive exercise. You know, we can do that in a, in a streamlined and a right-sized manner for our clients that, um, you know, when, when you can cut their global effective tax rate in half, they're, they're perfectly happy to have you involved and perfectly happy to, to pay your bill as a result. There's everyone is, I mean, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg is reporting about a series of looming bankruptcies in the wake of COVID. And I'm wondering to what extent you view these bankruptcies and restructurings as a catalyst for wholesale tax strategy changes. Will companies just use this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, reassess things for, you know, going forward? Or in many cases, do they often just not really consider the implications of strat- tax strategy altogether, I guess, how. No, I, yeah, John, I, I think we're right. I think we're at a point where, you know, it is, um, it's, you know, the, the, the tax strategy and the treasury strategy in particular are, are, are big drivers. And I think they are uh, at the forefront now more than ever. I mean, we look at, um, we, we have some clients that are doing some, uh, some take private deals. We have some clients that are looking at onboarding some distressed assets. Um, we haven't talked about uh, interest rates so far in our conversation, but you know, near historically low interest rates um, that are also you know, freeing up some cash. And so I, I think there's there's uh, a lot of opportunity in the market right now for either um, restructuring. Uh, or for onboarding. And, and so I think whether you're buy side or sell side, we're seeing a lot of activity. Now, you know, some of that's seasonal, to be fair. I mean, we, we normally, uh, you know, as we approach the last quarter of the year, we normally see somewhat of a, of a hockey stick, if you will, in terms of um, activity and conversations with our private equity clients around their strategy going into uh, the new year, their projections, their forecasts. So that's not necessarily uh, new from a seasonal perspective, but I do think there are a number of macroeconomic factors that are, are really giving us a, a significant uptick at the moment in, in the dialogue and the conversation uh, around you know, opportunities in the marketplace to, to make some very wise and very strategic decisions uh, around restructuring in general. Well, Sean, we're nearing we're nearing the end of our time here, uh, and I'm and I'm wondering, uh, you know, leaving this podcast, if you're willing to make any predictions about the upcoming election and what the tax landscape will look like on in early November, any any thoughts, or will you reserve reserve judgment for this for this time? Well, well, I, I learned a long time ago in my career, John, that, that you never try to, to be something you're not and, and you never purport to be something that you're not. And so um, I will not purport to be a, a great um, political predictor here. Uh, what I will tell you uh, is that my calendar for the days immediately following Election Day 
uh, my calendar is already full. And I, and I tell you that because it will give um, the audience a sense uh, of just how closely companies are, are monitoring uh, the current political situation and, and political discussion leading up to Election Day. I, I literally have a full slate of meetings and conference calls uh, with clients and prospective clients who are ready to jump and, and react and, and leap um, immediately on the heels of the election. And so, uh, as I said earlier, I, I, I don't necessarily advocate for, for knee-jerk reactions um, predicated on politics. But what I will tell you is that I, I think there is um, a, enough noise around the potential change to tax policy uh, as we approach Election Day that the noise itself uh, is is pushing the dialogue. The noise itself, whether it comes to fruition or whether it um, becomes reality, the very fact that I have a, a full slate of meetings and conversations based upon what could be, uh, I think, is in and of itself quite instructive. And so I would I would counsel uh, clients and and our audience to keep a close eye, you know, be nimble, be ready to react. Uh, Knee jerk reactions again, not not recommended. Um, but be ready to react. I think you could see a couple of different um, break points here. I think you could see uh, if, if the election goes in one direction, I think you could see companies uh, immediately uh, retracting, uh, retrenching some of their offshore structuring uh, for fear that it would be hit with some uh, you know, penalty type of, um, of proposals. I think you could also see companies doubling down uh, on their international structures, pushing more substance and activity uh, into offshore locations to, to, to shore up, if you will, uh, their global position around where they're allocating income. So I think there will be movement, um, but that's as far as I'll go in an overall prediction, John. Well, fair enough, Sean. And you know, I wanted to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And we'll be sure uh, or we'll make every effort to try and get some time on your calendar after the election, and you can give everyone an update on what your thoughts are. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here, and thanks so much for having me. Thank you.